Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. We are back for another year of fun, fury and fabulous guests from around the world. Join us as we dive into the topics mainstream media is too frightened to mention and chase the awkward truths our politicians would rather we didn't know about. Coming up, we have the CEO of Women's Forum Australia, Rachel Wong. She is here to discuss the 5,000-strong petition in New South Wales. They reject the anti-women, anti-children, anti-family bill being pushed through Parliament seemingly without a proper public debate. Not only does this bill threaten to remove gender protection from women and girls under the sympathetic guise of self-ID, it will legalise child trafficking with sweeping changes to surrogacy laws. But first, we are joined by a mathematician and political commentator, Professor Norman Fenton. Norman, welcome to my show. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Oh, look, it's a real pleasure to have you. But before we get started, Norman, tell us, how did a mathematician end up embedded in political commentary? Well, I actually retired at the end of 2022, probably as a result of, of ending up in the political commentary. I wasn't at all considered to be, I mean, I was considered to be quite a, you know, sort of, I had a sort of prestigious career as a, as a, a professor at uh, Queen Mary University. I'd, you know, I've, I've actually uh, published 400 referee papers, six books on mass probability and computing, and was considered to be kind of like, you know, an international authority on risk. But it all changed in 2020 when I started to show that the entire COVID narrative was being driven by flawed and easily manipulated statistics. Now, I was doing what I always did. I was, I was applying the sort of the maths and probability to real-world problems. In particular, a lot of the stuff we were doing was always about medical risk as well. So to me, that was my normal work. It was never considered to be controversial. I never, I never publicly declared any uh, political stance whatsoever. But it was clear, I made it very clear early on, we were one of the first to show that the, these manipulated and flawed statistics were basically exaggerating the deadliness of COVID and certainly exaggerating later on the safety and effectiveness of the drastic intervention measures like lockdowns and then, of course, the vaccines. 
And then suddenly, because I was saying these things, you know, on, on Twitter and we had we set up a Substack page, you know, I was suddenly called a conspiracy theorist and a spreader of misinformation. And of course, people in what was I guess would be called the freedom movement then were sort of happy to have people like me because I was a rarity. I was actually a rarity amongst academics in a specific particularly in on the stats and, and, and math side, because all those guys were the ones who were responsible for a lot of the flawed models, you know, which led us into that ridiculous lockdown situation and, and stuff like that. So I was kind of like sought after, I guess, as a voice to counter that narrative. But, you know, I was called a conspiracy theorist. You know, I was, I was, I was called a rabid misinformation merchant by sort of fellow um, academics and stuff like that. And, and from that point on, all my research papers, you know, on the subject were essentially censored and I was treated like an academic pariah. I mean, my Wikipedia page was hacked. I was like disinvited from seminars, major conferences. I mean, in June 2023, after being billed as a star speaker at an NHS conference on data analytics and AI medicine, which got had nothing, my talk had nothing to do with COVID or anything controversial. It was just about my sort of Bayesian probability work. They basically cancelled me and they because they said that they they'd they'd seen my twitter posts about covid vaccines and and because of that my presence at the conference would be a distraction and, and that my views were incompatible with those of the nhs and just finally on the background i believe that the um the it's not just the covid crisis but also the climate crisis this is another thing i've started to talk talk about in public i mean i had to be fair i did do in 2015 a documentary. I, I did present a documentary about climate change to the BBC, and I'll need to maybe say something about that later because that actually is important for, I think, for some of the other topics we'll discuss. But climate crisis, like the COVID crisis, I, I, I start to say was also massively exaggerated by the use of these flawed models and statistics. Well, like so many people, your data is what got you into trouble as far as the new political landscape goes. I mean, yeah. commentators like myself, we're all well and good. We have the emotion and the reasoning of what's going wrong. But mathematicians like yourself, you have the cold, hard data. And that, I think, frightens some of these institutions quite a lot. But you're a celebrity in the commentary world, whether you like it or not. I found you through Mark Stein, our dear friend who is currently battling the hockey stick enthusiast Michael man. Now, when we met on the cruise, you had a line of people yeah. longer to shake your hand than Mark's angels. But <laughs> I, I have noticed lately that the political landscape is getting more difficult to navigate, particularly online. If you look 20 years ago, there was a clear definition between what conservatives believed and what Labor voters believed. And now we have these divisions coming into these groups, making them smaller and smaller and dividing into subgroups. What do you make of the social yeah. media's influence in politics? Is this going to uh, impact the way we come across ideas and the way we form new political ideas? Are we going to, for example, cancel each other out in this sort of endless noise? Uh, well, that's, that's, a good, that's a very good question because, I mean, if you think about the whole perception of the, of this, of the freedom movement, I mean, that which grew up kind of like around the... Um, you know, countering the sort of the official COVID narrative, that was, for some reason, that was that was actually perceived primarily as a conservative movement. If you think about it, but that was a kind of that was a, if you think about it, that was a fallacy which was perpetuated by the mainstream media because there certainly were 
and are conservatives and libertarians in that movement. I mean, people like ourselves, I guess, who always resented the imposition of unnecessary authoritarian controls, you know, imposed by the globalist leftists. And and, and they actually use the, the far right slur against people like us and everyone else opposed to their policies. But for many in, in the freedom movement, uh, this was the first time that they really understood the extent to which their governments were like lying to them. And they were using, of course, social media was the, the means of which they were communicating. You know, it was, I mean, it was the only means that they could communicate with each other, essentially find new people. But the problem was at the same time, many hardcore conspiracy theorists, which included many far left and socialists, right, actually jumped onto the freedom movement. You know, they, it was, you know, they jumped on as a bandwagon. They weren't even there. Most of those people weren't there, you know, at the beginning, a lot of them. A lot of the, those hard leftists were actually saying, you know, we welcome lockdowns. We want to lock down harder and faster and all that sort of nonsense, right? And But they convinced a lot of the new people that everything they previously believed about the world was false. I, when I say new people, I mean new people within, the, you know, this freedom movement. For example, I know you got attacked for daring, for example, to come out in support of Ukraine, because there seemed to be, you know, a consensus within the movement that the, that the Ukraine war was a globalist psyop, you know, just like COVID and just like climate change. So people, you know, felt, well, this was also the same. And you couldn't, you, if you questioned it, you were somehow, your my, purity was sort of questioned. My, my big crime was refusing to say that the ex-head of the KGB or a KGB torturer, I refused to say that he was some kind of ambassador for freedom and, and civil rights. That was my yeah. crime. Uh, that's what was being obsessed about at the time. It's this weird new perspective where you have to view everything through one lens. It's almost a, a conservative version of the oppressor-oppressed narrative, where it's the good versus evil narrative coming through the conservative movement. But a rare point of clarity appears to be forming around food security in Europe, where the United Nations, through its sustainability policies, has been doing its best impression of Chairman Mao by seeking to meddle in agriculture to centralise it. And in their yep. mind, I'm sure at least, they wish to streamline it. But essentially, they believe that by adding bureaucracy to farming, they will make it more efficient, despite that never being the case in any past centuries. Now, we have an example in our part of the world, which is Sri Lanka, and they were early adopters of this uh, yeah. policy via their little WEF UN enthusiast leader. And they got a taste of what sustainability yeah. looks like in the real world. And, you know, spoil, spoiler alert, it was a disaster. Food production collapsed in Sri Lanka and took the economy down with it. Shortly after, their farmers downed tools forever. And the agricultural infrastructure has now evaporated with political leaders. You know, they're hitching rides on military boats trying to escape the population. Now, Europe, I understand, does not want to be like Sri Lanka. And we all talk about how COVID disrupted global politics forever and changed the way nations interact. But Norman, is food security the real political fight of our lifetime, I, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, if you think about what the the uh, I mean, in terms of the farmers, you know, you've got the at the moment you've got the farmers' protests, which have happened. You know, that happened in Holland, Germany, and now France. Right? Um, there's a perception that there is a war against farmers as a result of you know the inevitable result of the net zero policy, and that. Um, the way and you know farmers without farmers you don't have any food and of course i think the globalists always saw food 
as the sort of ultimate means of control of the population. If you control the food supplies, then you you know you can you can control the population, right? But actually, if you think about it, um, the uh, the farmers certainly all recognise that there's a war against them. There's a, they're, they're unified. There's a unified um, consensus in that sense. And again, again, we see a lot of the population are behind. You know, do support you know the farmers' protests in that sense. But actually, there are very different motivations um, for the farmers' actions against which are uh, going across the across the different countries. So, for example, the Dutch farmers, that was all about the ludicrous nitrogen emission targets, which was leading to actual ex expropriation of many farms. Whereas for the Germans, it was they were protesting cuts to special subsidies, for example, that they got on diesel fuel. And with the French, it's mainly about overregulation. Now, I think it's great that I welcome any challenge to sort of the WF Great Reset you know, net zero targets and all that sort of nonsense. But actually, none of those protests, or I don't think any of the protest leaders in those movements, actually reject the whole climate change net zero narrative, which I think is a complete scam. Well, you might right? have a, you might have so a real... For example, you might have a real point there because I'm hearing a lot about them not liking the taxes, them being upset about being pushed off their land, but we're not seeing a rebellion against the ideology of climate change in general. I mean, the French farmers right now are enacting a recreation of the siege of Paris. I mean, they are trying to starve yeah. their city counterparts into seeing some kind of common sense. They're blockading roads with tractors, they're piling haystacks onto the backs of lorries and then setting them on fire. I mean, farmers have even attacked the competing lorries that are coming in from Belgium and Germany, and they famously poured 10,000 litres of Spanish wine onto the freeway. I mean, that's the French for you. What can you say? But Norman, this is skirting pretty close to civil war behaviour, of course, apart from there being no intent for violence. As political commentators, whether you think it's the biggest fight there is or not, is it still showing a breakdown of the United Nations, the Europeans' policies and ideologies that perhaps these net zero ideas that are being pushed onto us at great expense don't work in the real world? Look, we, I mean, you gave the example of Sri Lanka. I mean, if you thought, you know, if they didn't see that as an obvious example of why it wouldn't work in the real world, you'd think they never would. But no, they are doubling down, they're tripling down on this. And incidentally, to go back to this point about about their, I, I don't believe that that any of these, uh, of the activists in, you know, amongst the farmers are really challenging the that that whole net zero climate change agenda. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, look, they actually want to disassociate themselves with people who actually challenge the sort of the Great Reset and the whole climate change narrative. So, for example, look, our, our friend Ava Verlaningerbrook was told that, although she did go to Germany, she was told that she was going to be unwelcome to join it because she was considered to be far right. I mean, there's that, they've managed to, the, the mainstream media, the globalists, have managed to convince, and still managed to convince the most of the population that anybody who really challenges the Great Reset, the whole net zero climate change agenda, is somehow still far right conspiracy theorists. We, we managed to break through, we managed to kind of break through on COVID to the extent that we really did change the narrative, in particular with regard to, like, for example, the vaccines, right? So we, despite all their control over mainstream media, we managed to convince the public generally that the vaccines weren't really safe and effective. And that destroyed their whole agenda for having these, you know, continuous, ever 
you know, the, the vaccine, the COVID vaccines twice a year forevermore. We, we did that. But I don't think we've got, I don't think we've made any real penetration against the, the whole you know, net zero climate change agenda. Well, I mean, hold, this well, thing has been going on. You've got to remember. Hold that thought, Norman. It's we been have going to, on for years. I mean, we have to cut to a quick break, okay. but we'll be back with you in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm here with Professor Norman Fenton and we are talking about all things crazy inside the United Nations and the World Economic Forum, who, speaking of, the WEF likes to talk about the spread of misinformation and disinformation, calling it the greatest threat to the future. Now, I'd like you to have a listen to this short clip featuring the president of the European Commission speaking at Davos earlier this year. The top concern for the next two years is not conflict or climate. It is disinformation and misinformation, followed closely by polarization within our societies. These risks are serious because they limit our ability to tackle the big global challenges we are facing, changes in our climate, Norman, when you hear that, what do you think? Well, first of all, it confirms what I was saying, that they're still pushing, you know, the climate you know, catastrophe narrative, that completely fake narrative. That's still, they, they're still trying to push that as their number one threat. And we, as I said, we still haven't managed to penetrate to the general public that that is a complete and utter, you know, a, a complete and utter scam, right? But the fact that they're raising the issue of disinformation as almost an equal threat, you know, they're calling it a global threat, is incredibly interesting, right? Because as I was saying before, they know that despite the, their total control of the mainstream media and almost all of social media, we managed to make a little bit of a dent on their globalist agenda with the COVID vaccines, right? We made, but we, as I say, we haven't, we haven't managed it with climate, but the fact that they're putting it now like up there with one of the top threats, whether it's number one or number two, I'm not sure. Actually, I believe that is a way of signaling to us that they need to get, that they actually need to regain more control of social media to stop anti-globalist politicians winning power. I mean, they are absolutely furious about Wilders in Holland and Malay in Argentina, but their ultimate nightmare is the scenario of Trump winning in November. That's what, that's why they are, absolutely doubling down on this disinformation thing now because they used total control of social media in 2020 to stop to stop trump because they were using the misinformation card there to basically censor any you know, any 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 stuff which was basically showing that biden was basically a you know a dementia you know was basically had you know suffering dementia and wasn't fit to, to lead the free world and also they were suppressing you know, they were the ones pushing misinformation, of course, about Trump. Well, but, you know, they suppressed things like the, you know, the, the Biden, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop yeah, uh, well, story. Of, so of course, they love to be in why. control. You know, they, they control, they control. No, sorry. They love to be in control. But as a mathematician, you'd know all about tipping points and crowd dynamics, what turns a small movement into a mob, so to speak. Now, once a certain number of people subscribe to an idea or a moral panic, there's a danger it will become a self-sustaining ideology. How do you view the intrusion of technological advancements like AI in the chatbots teaching our kids preferred histories, you know, algorithms that pick and choose which ideas are allowed to be heard, 
and the deplatforming of high-profile political speakers. How does that uh, change the way that humans interact with each other and political ideas? Because we've never had a situation before where the whole world can talk to each other and instead of getting the competition of ideas within a nation of similar thinkers, we're getting uh, competition from highly restrictive nations starting to drown out freedom and democracy-loving nations. I think it's in, I think it's incredibly dangerous, right? Because AI is an incredibly you know we people can see how incredibly dangerous a tool it is. You you know the extent of deep fakes which can completely fool you know m most people. That's the you know that's obviously a, a danger. But what I consider even more dangerous about it is the fact that the people in, who have a lot of control over the direction of this AI are, as you say, very authoritarian, and. I know from personal experience again that the major, the people, the major researchers, or the people who are getting all the research funding for AI, for example, in the UK, have to follow a, polit a particular political narrative. So, for example, I used to be, you know, before I was kind of like uh, censored as an academic, I was a, a, a fellow of the Turing Institute, which was, which is the national um, UK. Uh, you know the big AI institute, sort of very it's considered to be sort of very prestigious, and and a lot of their work, a lot of their work was on these uh, algorithms for um, basically controlling and finding controlling information on the on the internet. And enormously, you'd be amazed how much how much um, funding has gone into that. And if you want to get that funding, you basically have to you have to show your loyalty. To you know, to the official, you know, political narrative and the official woke agenda. So, for example, you have, and I've I've seen actual mathematicians say they have to adjust, they have to adjust their algorithms to make them less accurate because otherwise they would be considered to be, you know, they'd be classified as racist or homophobic and stuff like that. So you've got all that going on, and then again, you any if you. If you if you simply don't if you're not prepared to buy into that whole woke agenda and the whole sort of globalist narrative, you don't get funding to do that work. So the people who are basically doing the research and controlling it are all basically also pushing all these same agendas. You know, they're they're pushing the you know the climate change agenda. They're pushing that whole. They're really focusing on disinformation and controlling information, but in particularly by finding. They, they're, they're basically trying to determine that all conservative voices are disinformation. Well, let's talk Anybody about challenging the official narrative. Let's talk about conservative voices for a moment, because conservative and libertarian speakers have been making headway in the last couple of years. There are some big names rising to the top and they have serious follower bases. Cancelling them from media yeah. channels is no longer enough to silence them because we, of course, have Elon Musk's Twitter offering them safe harbour. Now, we've got friends of this show like Lawrence Fox, Jordan Peterson, Mark Stein, Calvin Robinson, Neil Oliver, and then the international groups like the Daily Wire team. This has handful of voices has turned into what is effectively a small crowd and the side it's growing. So conservative politics is suddenly becoming kind of cool. And you can see that with uh, Ben Shapiro's you know, rap ending up as the top trending song last week, which is uh, crazy, but there you go. But these figures have to compete for airspace, not just against the left, but against each other. Now, Norman, do the new leaders of the conservative movement have a responsibility to keep the fractured and sometimes 
angry people focused on the real threat, which is this socialist, collectivist, woke takeover? Uh, I think there's a problem there because whereas on the left, all of the key sort of figures, you know, all of the high profile figures all do tend to basically read from the same script. We're not getting that within the conservative movement. I mean, there's a lot of egos. We know that there's certainly a lot of egos involved here. And there are quite, you know, significant differences of opinion. I mean, we've got this massive, you know, fracture at the moment, uh, you know, with the the whole Israel-Gaza conflict. It's caused an enormous fracture within the freedom movement. And even people who, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I always had a personal concern about this with the within, you know, the, the sort of the conservative movement, those big figures, because I, I, as a Jew's family come from and live in Israel, um, it was clear that there were many people, and including some of the big names, maybe not the ones you mentioned, but certainly plenty who would be would have been considered as, as, as major conservative voices within the movement who turned out to be, you know, the word it turned out that you know they were they were really believing conspiracy theories that were anti-semitic right because they were assuming things like zionists were responsible for most of the bad things that happened in the world in the last hundred years and this seemed to come to a fore as a result of the uh, the israel uh, gaza con conflict i mean i i was you know it, it meant i, I kind of got the, tr the triple whammy here because i've been called a uh, a covid I'd be called a COVID denier, a climate denier, and now a genocide denier simply because uh, I don't uh, recognise the false <laughs> genocide they claim in Israel. Norman, you've got the whole, the whole. I, I think I, I'm pretty I much on the set, same. I'm on the same page as you. I, I've been given death threats and all sorts of warning. I think I'm controlled opposition. Is that what they use? Something like that. That's what we get called. Yeah, they call everyone controlled opposition. If you see, if you if you come out, this is the thing. If you come out on one thing then that which it which doesn't fit with the what they consider to be the consensus then you're controlled opposition and the problem is that there aren't there are not i mean you you singled out the the, the ones you singled out i don't want to i don't really want to name names but you've 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 given examples of a set of people who do are who do reasonably can reasonably said to have opinions which you know maybe we would agree with almost all of them but there are many who are considered to be part of the conservative movement right or the anti-globalist movement in particular that's the difference the anti-globalist movement who definitely have very different opinions on those on certain subjects and you've got this massive fracture which it doesn't exist on the left that's the left doesn't have that problem they really do have a united theme on everything they, they don't they don't criticize each other they just you know, they, they just That's, won't get anybody on the left basically really challenging the whole woke agenda or the globalist agenda. That's so true. My favourite is people saying, oh, you've been told to write this. And I'm telling you right now, no one can write me, make me write anything I don't want. It's an ongoing complaint against me. But uh, Norman, my biggest fear regarding this whole everything is a lie narrative, which is being peddled by some of our leading figures. I mean, it's popular for sure. People love to hear that this gimmick, that they have some revealed secret or, or unknown knowledge that's being given to just them. But this is what drove things like the ultimately damaging QAnon phenomena, which kept promising bombshells yeah. only to deliver nothing. And if you believe that nothing is true, well then your, any kind of lie can come in and then be 
be believed because you have no way to ground yourself in reality. That's how we've ended up having things like where flat earth theory is suddenly making the rounds again. I mean, it seems uh, extraordinary, but some of these figures who you agree with on some things suddenly are off saying, well, we're agnostic on flat earth, which I find, I just don't know how they get to that position. But Exactly, and, that, and, and, and some of the people pushing that uh, are some of the people who we would have considered, you know, a year ago to be, you know, like-minded to us and, and really, you know, leaders of, of the anti-globalist and freedom movement. Well, what I want to ask you specifically there, is there a blurring of the word conspiracy? Because we use conspiracy jokingly during COVID to refer to things that the government was denying but were actually true. We didn't mean that all crazy conspiracies were actually true. That wasn't our intention. Is that a problem for our movement? Oh, it absolutely is a problem because, as, as I said, a lot of the newbies in the movement get kind of like convinced by, you know, the, uh, well, let's I'll mention one name, sort of the sort of David Icke sort of type characters. And, and um, they do genuinely believe that everything, everything is conspiracy and you can't challenge any of these conspiracies, whether, whether it be sort of flat earth, you know, the 9-11 stuff. And as I said, the one that is particularly problematic to me is the sort of the whole global Jewish Zionist, you know, global globalist control, which is, as I said, which is what I think has had a very damaging impact. I mean, it's very interesting. Do you know the book, um, which is relevant to all of these discussions, the book by Rosa Coire called, it was in 2011, called Behind the Green Mask. It was all about Agenda 21, actually, and that because Agenda 21 was the forerunner for the whole net zero thing, and it was... It was what came out of the 1992 UN sustainable development stuff. It was basically, it was all set in stone there because that was where, for example, um, they, 192 countries actually signed up to that sustainable development, which effectively meant they, they gave control over all local environmental decisions in each country to the UN, right? So in her book, she reveals all this, but she reveals something very, very interesting. Right at the start of the book, she actually said that, Opposition, the reason why they couldn't raise any too much awareness of, of the of the future damage of this this whole agenda 21, there was people just weren't aware of it. They couldn't raise awareness within the sort of the mainstream media because it was conflated. It was often conflated with anti-Semitism. A lot of the people who were opposing Agenda 21, right? I opposed the globalist agenda, called it a Zionist plot, she said then. And she said you know, of course, that's absurd because, you know, Zionism is an ultra-nationalist movement, completely opposed to the dissolution of national boundaries. It's a tiny country, etc. And she was saying that if you approach it from, you know, from 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 that angle, it's not productive. It's not realistic. I mean, you could say it's a Protestant plot. You know, would that make any more sense? But it feeds right into a dialectic that pits us one against the other. Well, and the mainstream media, mainstream media can then refer to it as fringe, Right. And say these people are all mad and, and, and don't take their genuine concerns seriously. Well, just for our entertainment and quickly here at the end, I'm going to play a short clip uh, from James Dellingpole and David Icke. Have a watch. <laughs> you can't appear out of nowhere and disappear into nowhere. But that's not what's happened. What's happened is the UFO or the entity has entered the frequency band of visible light. And when it enters visible light, the observer sees it. And to the observer, it's appeared out of nowhere. 
and then it leaves visible light and to the observer it's disappeared into nowhere. So understanding that we can only see a certain band of frequency, very narrow, is vital to understanding so many mysteries, including why we cannot see that which is ultimately manipulating this reality. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still sort of lost here, because I'm, I'm sort of asking questions, like, like, okay, so you've got, you've read Springmire, haven't you? The, the, yeah. No, I, I love that, because um, no, I, I David Icke managed to outweigh uh, Dellingpole, which uh, I just enjoy quite a lot. Now, look, we've unfortunately run out of time, but I wanted to use that as the example so that we had, uh, our audience knew what we were talking about. But look, it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you here today, Norman. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me on. Welcome back to the show. I am joined by the CEO of Women's Forum Australia, Rachel Wong. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the 12,000 strong petition in New South Wales, could you tell our viewers a little bit about the Women's Forum Australia? So Women's Forum Australia is a non-profit think tank that does research, education and policy advocacy around issues affecting women and girls. We have a particular focus on addressing behaviours and practices that are harmful and abusive to them. And we've been around since 2004. It's actually our 20th birthday this year. So, yeah. Well, happy birthday, I guess, is in order. But, I mean, you wouldn't think that the rights of women and girls would have to be defended in the modern age. When I was growing up, this was a debate that was already done and dusted, a bit like the whole free speech and race politics. We thought all that was settled. It's been a bit of a surprise in the new age that we have to fight these battles. Uh, how important is the work that your organisation actually does? Oh, I mean, I obviously think it's incredibly important. Um, and, yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, we are still in an age of, you know, women's rights and a focus on sort of improving equality for women, and you hear a lot about it in the mainstream media. But people seem to have forgotten what that really means or they don't seem to understand what exactly is at stake in some of these sort of more modern developments. Um, so, so, yeah, obviously I'm very, very um, happy to talk to you more about some of those things. Yes, well, we've got to go all the way back to basics and define what a woman actually is before we can even defend those rights. But, of course, we've seen the rights of women and girls around the world coming under threat from various laws that view self-identification the same as biological gender. One of these laws is making its way through the New South, Par New South Wales Parliament right now. Now, Rachel, what is this law and what are you concerned about? Like, what, what is it going to mean for New South Wales girls and women? So the particular um, law or reform that you mentioned in relation to sex self-ID is just one aspect of a bill introduced by independent MP Alex Greenwich in August last year, um, ironically called the Equality Bill. Um, and so that particular aspect of the reforms that he's proposing to introduce in New South Wales will basically allow anyone to change their legal sex on their birth certificate, on other legal documents, and to be treated as that sex for all intents and purposes under law. And so, obviously, just in terms of science and logic, that doesn't make any sense. But women's advocates like myself are particularly concerned that it will allow males to self-identify as women and girls with 
the bare minimum of safeguards and it will allow them to be able to access female-only spaces like bathrooms, like changing rooms, like refuges, like prisons with full protection of the law. And, you know, overseas we've already seen um, these kinds of self-ID policies and self-ID laws being abused by, for example, in Scotland, um, male offenders identifying as women to get into women's prisons and then on release actually going back to living their lives as men. Um, we've also seen women being sexually assaulted in what should be female-only spaces by men who are identifying as women, um, over, both overseas and in Australia. So obviously we're very, very concerned about that um, proposal in the bill. Well, not only overseas, this week we saw swim, ba swim brand Rip Curl join the ranks of companies who choose transgender women, aka biological men, to represent their brand instead of women. Now, whether it's a brand deal or fairness in sporting competition, women feel that they are either being replaced or destined to give up their podiums to men. Now, I've heard it said by critics that these self-ID laws are all about fairness and equality. Rachel, is it fair to be inclusive of men in women's spaces or does society need to set some boundaries? Firstly, that story with Rip Curl was just crazy. Like it was just, especially given that Rip Curl had just parted ways with um, female surfer Bethany Hamilton, who had been um, speaking out against the unfairness of males competing in women's surfing and in women's sport more generally, to then go and replace her with a male who identifies as a woman was just a real slap in the face to women. But in response to your question about whether or not um, we need to be inclusive of men and women's spaces or whether we need to set boundaries, I think our society has actually already drawn those lines and made those decisions. So if, if we look at our, um, our current society, we already have single-sex spaces and services for males and for females. Um, we have single-sex, you know, bathrooms, prisons. We have single-sex sporting teams and events. But what um, this particular bill or, or self-ID or gender ideology more broadly is trying to do is it's trying to sell the lie that human beings can change sex and that, therefore, if a man says he's a woman, we have to treat him as a woman and allow him to access all those spaces as a woman. So, again, I think as a society we've drawn those boundaries, but this particular ideology is coming in and turning it all on its head with its sort of irrational assumptions. Well, your petition against this bill has amassed 12,000 signatures despite silence from the mainstream press and quite a lot of feminist groups. You've addressed this to Premier Chris Minns, the Attorney General Michael Daly, the Minister for Women Jody Harrison and Parliament at large. Have you had any response from these ministers or any indication you know, at all that you are being taken seriously and your concerns for women are being taken seriously? So I haven't heard, I've actually written to every single um, politician individually in the New South Wales Parliament and obviously the petition, as you say, is addressed to those three um, key government members and the rest of the New South Wales Parliament. I haven't heard specifically from, from those three members. I have met and spoke to um, MPs from across the political spectrum, all of whom have concerns about um, the self-ID aspect of the bill and other aspects as well. Um, but... In terms of actual consultation being done by Greenwich or, or by the government with women's groups sort of face-to-face, -face, there doesn't seem like there's a lot of that being done overall. Um, and the reality is even if there's sort of, you know, a few people here and there who are willing to, um, to directly say to me that they're concerned, if the Labor government supports this, particularly in the Legislative Assembly next week, 
it will go through because they've got the vast majority majority in that house. It will be a bit closer in Legislative Council, but unless the Liberals actually vote as a bloc against this bill, like they did in Queensland against the self-ID law in particular, then there's a very, very high chance it'll go through there as well. And my understanding is that Labor is quite supportive of the self-ID aspect anyway, and also um, and also the surrogacy aspect of the bill. So, it's, I mean, people can say all they like that, you know, the, the Labor government sort of has to do this to appease Greenwich, but I think, unfortunately, a lot of the reforms that he's proposed are actually in line with their values as well. Well, thank you very much for that. We're just going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Rachel Wong in just a second. Well, we're back with Rachel Wong and we're talking about a new bill that's going through New South Wales Parliament very shortly. Now, Rachel, I haven't heard much said about the commercial surrogacy portion of the bill. Indeed, the topic of surrogacy rarely makes it to the press, if at all, in New South Wales. It is still, it is legal in uh, all states as far as I know and seems to cost anywhere from $15,000 to $100,000 per child. But your petition describes a situation where the bans on commercial surrogacy, which is different to private surrogacy will be lifted and this will, in your view, encourage the commodification of vulnerable women and the wombs for rent idea and having children as basically products. Can you explain what your fears are in relation to this particular aspect of the bill? Okay, so um, myself, other women's rights advocates, children's advocates, human rights defenders have concerns around surrogacy more broadly, but speaking particularly about commercial surrogacy and particularly about overseas commercial surrogacy, which is what this particular bill will legalise, there are there are several concerns. So firstly, this bill is, is seeking to circumvent the federal parliament's Australia-wide ban on commercial surrogacy, um, which it, it implemented for a very good reason, and that was because it couldn't ensure that there wouldn't be exploitation of women and children within surrogacy arrangements. Several states actually allow commercial, um, allow people to go overseas to engage in surrogacy arrangements. New South Wales is not one of those states and Alex Greenwich is trying to make it so that it is. And so what I'm particularly concerned about with the overseas commercial surrogacy aspect is that it will allow New South Wales residents to go overseas particularly to poor and disadvantaged countries and to hire the wombs of women over there and to buy children, basically, from those women. You know, surrogacy, commercial surrogacy is not something that rich women tend to engage with. It's, it's women who are, you know, struggling to feed their families, come from backgrounds of um, disadvantage, exploitation and so on. And so I'm particularly concerned about the exploitation of women in those countries. Um, and I think, you know, there have been so many stories, like even over the past sort of 6, 12 months, places like Greece, like Ukraine, where it has been shown that exploitation of surrogates is taking place. Um, and, you know, there were several stories last year where, um, you know, Australians had been going to these clinics and it had been shown that actually there was trafficking going on, there was like um, exploitation of the surrogates who were in, in the clinics and, and all of that. So I think to encourage that kind of practice, knowing that these things are happening, I just think is really, really shameful. Well, it sounds almost as if there is a fear this will open up some kind of child trafficking operation that exploits these poor and vulnerable women. And not to mention questions about what happens if there's something wrong with the child or if the child is ill and the mother can't 
uh, and the, sorry, the person who, who organised the child to be born doesn't want to take the child, or well, what does that woman then do with that child? Are we going to end up with a, a whole new class of orphans coming out of this? What happens to the mother of that child if they're injured during childbirth? There's so many things that could go wrong, and I can understand why there would be a problem with this. Is there any sort of perception that you've heard of in the community about how they feel either way? Are people pushing for this to go through, or is this uh, a surprise to you to find it in the bill? Look, I mean, all of these aspects of the so-called Equality Bill were not things that were talked about in the election, so they're not things that people um, knew about or necessarily interested in. Uh, of course, there are always going to be people campaigning for certain elements, but I don't think that there's a majority by any stretch of people campaigning for commercial surrogacy. I think, if any, it's, it's a very small minority. Yeah, it's not something I've heard people marching on the streets of Sydney about or even in even in uh, normal dinner room conversations, you've never really heard it brought up. It's strange that it's now at the forefront of this bill. But the demands contained in the bill, which include the introduction of self-ID, the deregulation of prostitution, removing bans and commercial surrogacy, as we talked about, and changes to the way children can identify their gender, where is this group of ideas coming from? Because the average woman is, is, they're not standing there screaming to have men allowed into their change rooms. If anything, women are quite uh, put off by the idea that their spaces, which they've enjoyed for so many years, are suddenly being uh, infiltrated by men. Why is this happening now? Why are we seeing bills like this come through? Is there a change in the ideology? I think there is, there's so much that could be said about this. I think there are a lot of troublesome ideologies floating around the place. I think um, there is this kind of distorted notion of freedom that, you know, freedom is basically licence and we should be able to do whatever it is possible that we can do in terms of what we want. I think that gender ideology is obviously something that's embedded itself within Australian society as well as worldwide, which, um, as I mentioned earlier, is this notion that gender is more important than biological sex. Anyone can be any gender they choose. Um, I think that there is this kind of Marxist ideology creeping in where the family is considered a source of inequality and we need to break that down. And I think um, elements of the bill which allow children to consent to um, changes to their legal sex or to consent to medical treatment without their parental consent, I think further creates that divide within the family. Um, and I think that there's this sort of, I guess, rejection of um, Judeo-Christian values at large. Um, and I think that that basically, that obviously, can, you know, covers a lot of things that are just simply part of the foundation of Western civilization. So I think there's a lot of things going on. I don't know that we can necessarily pin it down to one thing. There's also things to do with, um, you know, financial incentives. And, and we sort of see that, especially in the transgender issue as well, with, you know, children being signed up as clients for life in relation to things like puberty blockers and, and hormones and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Well, I guess you can see the logic in it from the point of view of an activist. They can't argue against the protection of women's spaces and the biological need for women's sports. That is pretty much an argument they're never going to win. But they can say, well, a man can now identify as a woman, therefore they're not actually challenging the status of these women's protections because men are women if they identify as such. So they get a, It's like a loophole. They've managed to get around the protections without actually having to debate the protections that are there and their validity. But Rachel, how can people help out on this, particularly if you're in New South Wales, how can they get involved? If you're in New South Wales, it's critical at the moment that you contact your MP, whether that is by emailing them, calling them, visiting them at their office. 
um, and letting them know your views on this because at the end of the day, MPs, especially in the Legislative Assembly, um, which is where the debate is being held next week, are asked there by the views of their constituents, especially if they hear enough um, of those constituents making a particular point. So it's really, really important that people reach out to them. Um, you can sign our petition, which is at womensforumaustralia.org forward slash protect New South Wales. And that also um, contains a tool which helps you to contact your MPs as well. Uh, and then I guess just continuing to have conversations with um, your friends and family, because unfortunately people are just very ignorant to the fact that this is going on. And that is by design because there are people that want to rush this legislation through. They know it's controversial. They don't want pushback. And so they're trying to do it as quietly and quickly as possible. Yes, and if you're watching this online, you can like, share and uh, make sure it goes around your friendship groups so that everyone can see what's going on in New South Wales and to protect women and girls in this state going forward. But thank you, Rachel Wong, for joining us today. It was lovely to have you on and we wish you all the best in your fight. Thank you so much, Alexandra. And that's all from us today. Remember, you can catch up on previous episodes or this show or check out other shows on ADH but by heading over to the website or downloading the ADH TV app at the App Store. And that's all from us today. Catch you next week.